Well, good morning. All right, we're good. Well, we find ourselves today um, on the wretched period of daylight savings. Uh, And so I'll give you grace for you yawning if I yawn. Please give me grace. There's a lot of yawning at the 830 service between myself and the congregation. But we also find ourselves today in our third week of our Lenten series, The Ways of True Life. And in this series, we're going to be spending time looking upon Israel's wanderings in the desert, specifically those stories that took place in the book of Exodus. So far, we have seen the miraculous provision of God recorded in Exodus 16, where during Exodus, uh, Israel's Exodus journey to Mount Sinai from Egypt, God provided both manna, the bread of heaven, and also quail for them to eat, providing for them in their time of need. When Israel thought it was hopeless, God provided for them. And then just last week, we spent time in Exodus 18, where we read of the importance of setting our own limits and the advice that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, gave to him. But this morning, we'll be spending time in Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14, 30 through 34. And while we have just read the story of Israel's golden calf incident, I want us to take us a bit deeper into the text and spend time looking at not only the context of it, but the truths and the lessons that we can learn from it. So we'll be examining what the sin of idolatry is, not just in the time of Moses, but also in 2023, what that can look like in our own lives. Then I will show from this passage God's intense feelings towards the sin of idolatry and how he responds to it and how we need to be on guard from it in our own lives. But I assure you we won't end on a sour note. Instead, we reflect upon how the sin of idolatry can be remedied. So to begin, what is idolatry? Typically, as 21st century Westerners, we think of idolatry as an ancient way of worshiping, a mythological god. But it's not the case, because we can have idols within our own lives. Generally, we think of them as figurines, whether small or immensely large, um, that are worshipped. But in reality, they can take a myriad of different ways in our own lives and in our own culture. And yes, Israel worships a golden calf in this story, which took place thousands of years ago. But do not let this story be your only example for your understanding of what idolatry is. Sadly, even though Moses toppled and burnt down the golden calf that Israel had casted together, idolatry still continued on, even in the people of God as it does today. And I want to give you a simple definition for idolatry to keep in your back pocket, which is something that becomes more important to us than God. I'll say again, idolatry is something that becomes more important to us than God. And when we apply this definition of idolatry, when we use it as a lens to look at it into our own lives to find idolatry, if there is some, it reveals to us that even good things can become an idol in our lives. This is because we can transform good things into the ultimate things in our own lives. Friends, we need to realize that anything and everything can become an idol in in our lives if we place such an ultimate value upon it, whether it's a person or a thing. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, defines idol in this way. And I find it fascinating and really eye-opening to us all. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you, such as peace, joy, comfort, and love, and many other things. 
And this is exactly what we saw and see in Exodus 32 with Israel's golden calf, the idol that they made. But it's interesting to note and remember that God, in all of his infinite wisdom, knew that mankind was prone to walk into this sin. And so he gave them in the Ten Commandments and a commandment against this to hopefully prevent them from committing this sin. And so in Exodus 20, on top of Mount Sinai, when Moses was in the presence of God, God gave him the Ten Commandments. I'm going to read for you just the first two to show you what was the commandment that Israel broke by creating this golden calf, this idol. And so in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6, we, hear, we read this. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down, down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so from this, we see a few fascinating things and incredible parts um, in this whole story that God wants us to know. First, we see that God is commanding Israel to have no other gods, just him and him alone. He is Yahweh. He is their God. Secondly, secondly we see that God explicitly and in fine detail commands Israel to not create any idols with their hands, both of things that are on earth and above in heaven. And it's interesting to know that after explaining what an idol may look like, God then goes a step further by telling them that even if they were to create one, they should not bow down to it or serve it. But if they do, well, then he will visit their iniquity for generations to come. And thirdly, we see that it's easy to overlook and miss what God is revealing in the Ten Commandments, which is this, that he's revealing more of himself, who he is, and the heart that he has for his people. We saw in verse 2 that he reminds us that when we are freed, when Israel was freed from their 430 years of bondage and from Egypt, that it was him who freed them. Not a, not a false god, not a false idol, it was him alone. In verse 5, we see that God is a jealous God. He declares it himself to us. He does not sugarcoat this. Instead, he proclaims it. And what he means by that is that he will not share his lordship with anybody else. False God or whether a false idol. It does not matter to him. And last, we see that it's easy to miss the heart of God. In the Ten Commandments, when they are looked at in a legalistic fashion, we can miss the heart of God. In verse 6, we saw right after mentioning the punishment for creating and serving and worshiping an idol or a false god, we see that God, in his steadfast love to his people, wants them for himself. The divine title, Heavenly Father, is not a, a man-made concept. It's a, it's a divine title for God. And so from these two commandments and the preface before them, we see how gracious and how serious God is in his sovereignty. He leaves nothing up for question, Yet he also shows his grand love for his people. But we'll sadly see in just a few weeks' time of God giving these commandments to Israel on top of Mount Sinai that they would forsake not only these two commandments, but God himself. And so going back to Exodus 32, we can see how exactly Israel broke 
this commandment of, of, of worshiping and bowing down to a false god. And so to set the scene, the nation of Israel is at the base of Mount Sinai, and God is at the top in a cloud of fire. And Moses is the mediator and the communicator and the messenger between the two. And so he's going to go up and down the mountain, um, bringing messages and responses from both God to Israel and Israel to God. But mind you, this is a real mountain. And uh, I did some research, and it's 2,200 meters each way. And so Moses has quite a trip to make uh, up and down each time that he travels to God or to Israel. And what was believed to be during Moses' sixth time on top of Mount Sinai, Israel began to grow really impatient with him. Out of their impatience grew speculation, speculation that he had died because Moses had been away from them for 40 days. Now the scriptures do not reveal to us what was actually being said in the, in the camp of Israel, but we can assume a few things. We can assume that there was probably hysteria, fear, stress, and immense hopelessness. How do we know this? Well, as ludicrous as it sounds, they cast it together out of all of their jewelry, an idol, not one of God, not for God, but a separate one, a golden calf, which as we know is a clear and direct violation of the second commandment. You may be asking yourself, as I did, where did Israel obtain this jewelry, all this jewelry that they had to, to create this golden calf? Because they had just been slaves for 430 years. And slaves, as we know, are not, are not known to have beautiful ornaments as we read in this, in this scripture. They don't have gold earrings or, or golden rings. There's no jewelry shop in the middle of the desert. How do they obtain this jewelry? Well, if you recall in Exodus 11, right before Moses shared with Pharaoh the tenth and final plague, God told him to tell all of Israel to go to every man of his neighbor and every woman of his neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. So not only did God free his people, he also outfitted them with all of the fine jewelry that was in Egypt. The slaves of Egypt who once wore rags now wear gold rings, gold earrings, and beautiful ornaments. From these gifts that God had granted them in Egypt, they took and melted down and created a golden calf. Now in no way could this be confused for anything else but an idol. How do we know this? Because it got much worse. They didn't just stop there by creating an idol. No, they created it, and then they declared it as God. They attributed it to their exodus from Egypt. They built an altar to it. They established even a day of feast for it. They sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to it, which, by the way, it was God who taught them how to do that. And they even played around it, as we read earlier. And as I just said, this was in no way a passive accident or an accident that just stumbled in front of them. No, it was a deliberate and direct violation of the first two commandments. Now, we can look at this story and chuckle to ourselves with how audacious it is, because let's be honest, it is. It's pathetic what Israel did um, at the camp at the bottom of Mount Sinai. But we need to realize that mankind has been creating and worshiping false gods and idols before this event, after this event, and even to this day. We must always be on guard and protect ourselves from breaking these first two commandments where Israel failed. In my research and preparation for this sermon, I came across a fascinating article by a pastor and writer by the name of Jeffrey Curtis Poor, where he listed 10 modern-day idols that he has seen both in the church and in this nation. And I'll list a few of them for you. One is identity. 
This can become an idol when our identity is rooted in our occupation, our achievements, maybe our alma mater, our social status, and even in ourselves, instead of being in God. Another one is money, not just in terms of reaching a certain amount in our, banks, uh, in our bank accounts, but even in the pursuit of money can become an idol in our own lives. The third is physical appearance. This idol can be either a desire to look a certain way, but also how others see us, seeking validations from others. Fourth is, a, is entertainment, being obsessed with either a Netflix show, a musician, or a movie, where we use entertainment to find joy and peace and comfort and a distraction from this life. And then lastly is technology, our phones most commonly. We can become a slave to our phone. I dare you to go into your settings and see exactly how many hours a day you spend on your phone and exactly what apps you're using. Yes, you can use it for a productive manner, but many of the times you use it in a self-serving manner, in an entertainment manner. So these five um, modern-day idols that Pastor Poor listed are actually five that I've struggled with. There's ten in the whole article. And to be honest with you, some of these I even struggle with to this day. And I want to share with you even more in, um, to focus in more on an idol that I had in my life that God intensely convicted me of just a few years ago. Sure, it wasn't a golden calf in my life, um, but it was doing to me the same thing that the golden calf was doing for Israel, which is drawing them away from God. And so in my younger years, I was consumed with sports. It was my idol. It didn't matter what the month was. I always had either an athlete, a team, or an event that I was intensely following. For an example, in January, you have professional and college football playoffs. Um, you have the Australian Open, February, the Super Bowl, March, March Madness, and spring training. And mixed all within that, you have soccer, NHL, UFC, um, I even got into the ho uh, competitive horse racing, thanks to my uh, friends from Kentucky. So I was following the Belmont Stakes, Preakness, uh, Kentucky Derby. I was there. I was watching it. Um, so as you can see, it wasn't just one thing. It was many. It was an accumulation um, that this idol was in my life. So at all times of the day, I was either watching a sporting event or I was reading an article from a sports journalist or listening to a, a podcast about the event that was coming up. Um, either before or even after the game. And so if you had asked me at that time in my life, if I had an idol, I would have laughed at you and would have said resoundingly, of course not, I don't have an idol in my life. Of course not. But looking at God's command on idols, I surely did. I bowed down to the sports schedule. It didn't just rule my calendar. It dictated my life by the hours. Like a servant who serves its master, I served my beloved sports in whatever way I could, whether attending a game, watching a game from the, uh, my barracks room, from my TV. And I didn't just watch it. I watched it like a maniac. I would yell and shout at the TV. The idol of sports controlled me. It truly did. It's embarrassing to say, but I would allow a sporting event, whether a win or a loss, dictate my emotions, which in turn affected my mental health greatly. But it wasn't until one Sunday after church did I come back to my barracks room and felt utterly convicted by the Holy Spirit. I knew that I had to make a life-altering decision right then and there. Do I continue to let this idol rule over my life like it had been, or do I instantly repent of it 
And thus let God, my creator and my savior, be the God of my life, the Lord of my life. And so I'm forever grateful that God in that day convicted me of this idol that was in my life. He, he convicted me in such an overwhelming way um, that it changed my life. And I pray this for both myself and for you, that if we are ever bowing down to or serving an idol in our lives, that we're convicted in that same way. And I pray this for some of my friends who are still trapped in that idol of sports. So how does God respond to idolatry? How did he respond to idolatry in Exodus 32? Well, in verses 7 to 10, we see just that. We see that he says that Israel has corrupted, uh, excuse me, corrupted themselves and quickly turned themselves away from his commandments and from himself. He called them a stiff-necked people, which is a word used to describe a person that is stubborn and filled with so much pride that they are unwilling to do what others ask of them or even what's in their best nature. The word perfectly sums up Israel at this moment. And in this portion of Exodus 32, we see a father, the father, God the father, grieving over his children, whom he has cared for, provided for, and led into freedom, all of which came out of his immense love for them. So what does God intend to do with Israel? Because they have chosen to worship an idol and claim it both as their God and their idol and who freed them from their bondage in Egypt. What he plans to, as we read in verse 10, annihilate them by burning them and consuming them with fire. Remember how in the second commandment that God tells his people that he is a jealous God. He will not be toyed with or forsaken. Over and over again, he reminds Israel of who he is, the promises that he has for them because of his covenants with them. So just when God told Moses to leave him alone because he was going to go annihilate the nation of Israel and begin all over with him, the covenants that he's promised, he was still going to fulfill, but just through Moses, not through Israel. Moses intercedes and does something incredible. Moses implores to God to not go through with this annihilation, which he knows God has every right to do. He asks God to have mercy upon his people, the nation of Israel, even though they had become an idolatrous people. They had forsaked God. Moses reminds God of the covenant that he made with Abraham centuries ago. Even though Israel had turned their back on God, Moses intercedes on their behalf with the hope, with the intention to make an atonement for their sins. God, who we know, incredibly loves Israel, but full of compassion and mercy, he, le he listens to Moses and relents from this disaster. He relents from it of almost raining down fire upon Israel and consuming them and wiping them from the face of the earth. And so we see in Exodus 32, verses 30 and 34, the, the, the end of this passage, that in that day Moses realized that there needs to be an atonement for this idolatrous sin, for this sin. Because earlier God had showed him on how Going forward, Israel would have to make an atonement for all of their sins. He had laid out for them how they are going to do that. But how were they going to do that? Because the tabernacle hadn't been built yet. There was no altar to make these sacrifices upon. Because God said to uh, Moses how he will blot out his people, but Moses instead asked that God would instead blot him out of his book to take his life in the place of their sins, to make the atoning sacrifice for because Moses understood the magnitude of Israel's sin. Yet he loves them so much that he was willing to lay down his life for them. He appeals to God, 
And he knows that it's not that God can be persuaded. Instead, it is Moses just simply trying to be the offering, the atonement for their sins. He knows that the penalty for sin is death, and that, he, that is what he wants to be on Israel's behalf. Now, God, in his great mercy and grace, does not accept this offering of Moses, but instead punishes just a few for the many. But let us not miss that this potential self-sacrificing act of Moses is a prefiguration of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. Moses offered himself as the atonement for Israel and their sins. But it's actually Jesus who was the one who is the true and final atoning sacrifice for not just Israel, but for the entire world and their sins. Jesus is our great high priest who, like Moses, mediates on our behalf to the Father for our sins. But where Moses fell short, Jesus abounds because he truly is the sacrificial lamb, the propitiation for all sin. And so his death on the cross settled once and for all that there is no need for more atoning sacrifices. God will not accept them. And so in all this, I want you to remember that God is a jealous God. He wants all of you, not part of you. He loves you so much so that he sent his son Jesus down the cross for your sins, especially the sin of idolatry. This is the greatest act of love that there ever was and there ever will be on earth. And it comes from God, a jealous God for his people. And so friends, idols may start out as just as golden rings, golden earrings, but they can manifest into golden calves, into idols in our own lives. And so beloved, completely forsake and rid yourself of the idols in your life. I have to tell myself this too, because they are not of the Lord, but of this world, of the evil one, Satan. Flee for them and run into the loving embrace of our Father, whose forgiveness never runs out. May we never forget that it was Jesus who died on our behalf for our sins, not an idol. If you are struggling with letting go, resisting, or turning from idols in your life, then now, not tomorrow or when the time is right, right now, ask the Lord to free you of these idols as you repent of them. He will hear your prayer, and His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, our Helper, will minister you in your time of need. I'm not just sharing this with you because it sounds good or may alleviate some stress in your life. I'm sharing it with you because it's the Word of God. He wants you to know this. He wants you to know the power that He can bring to you over death, over sin, how we can be overcomers of it. And so do not forsake this promise of the Lord from 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. I speak to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.